leaders. We pose the problems of human beings in their relations with the world. Change. Liberation is a praxis of action to reflection upon the world. Welcome to the pedagogy of the obsessed. We've been asking a lot of people these race, equity, and leadership questions, right, Shanna? That's right. We realized that on some level, if we're going to ask these tough questions of others, we should probably be asking them of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Now, I know for a lot of us that the way to this work is near and dear to our heart, and so that might be a good place for us to begin. Tell us a story about how an experience of race as a learner made you feel. What was the impact on your education? When I was in first grade, I remember being called into the school psychologist's office, and he gave us what I thought was a game. There was like seven kids, I think, in that room. We had to complete these games. And at that point, I didn't really speak English really well. I don't think my peers did either, just in kind of remembering who they were. But what we all had in common is that we were all Mexican. And uh, and I remember right after leaving the psychologist's office and going back to my classroom, and then a couple of days later, I saw that some of the same peers I had been in at that table were being moved to a different classroom. And, uh, and the classroom was a special education classroom. And I remember thinking as a first grader, being a little jealous that I wasn't able to go into the same room with them because I knew like, hey, these are my friends and how come I can't go there? I stayed in my own classroom and, and I always reflect on what happened to my friends that went to that classroom, right? The special education classroom. Fast forward, I'm sitting in teacher education when I was an undergrad and we're talking about uh, assessments and IQ testing specifically. When they show us examples of IQ tests, it's the same test that I took with the psychologist. And I was like, oh, this is the game that I had been given. So I call my mom and I remember asking her, did you know that they gave me an IQ test when I was in first grade? She had no idea. In terms of the practices, right, that at that time, that group of teachers and psychologists and who knows, maybe even the principal that they thought that they were mistaking our lack of English with a lack of intelligence. Just in reflecting about how life trajectories are affected by just that one single decision that an educator makes. My friends, I went to that special education classroom. I don't know what happened to them, but I know that the fact that I stayed in my classroom and I was able to you know, have access to the general curriculum and I probably had, you know, I had pretty good teachers in terms of elementary school that my life trajectory was impacted very differently. So as a principal, when I was sitting in IEP meetings, it was always at the forefront in terms of what decision am I making for this student that is going to impact their life trajectory, not just here during the time that they're here in our elementary school, but then what happens in middle school and high school and in the future as well. The way that you remember it is we're the only people that you could tell were getting the IQ test were the Mexican students in the class. Mm-hmm. There were some older kids in there, but yeah, the, the common the common denominator was that we were all Mexican and we spoke Spanish. In first grade? I was in first grade. That yeah. sort that happened so fast mm-hmm. and so early. Literally set people up for where they went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think the, the part that I forgot to mention was that my parents only had a second grade education, but they had the foresight of teaching us how to read in Spanish. When I arrived in kindergarten, even though I spoke no English whatsoever, I knew how to read already in Spanish. And so I think that, you know, as we know all the research that says, right, in terms of language transference, that I had a much easier time transferring into the English language. And so 
I think that's probably the reason why I was not removed from that classroom. And I probably did pretty well on the, the IQ test. And then just how sticky it is, right? Like when I think back to first grade, I think I know maybe 15 memories, if I really kind of stretch at it, that just naturally are there. Of your like limited capacity of first grade memories, like that's one of them. I was sitting at my son's school yesterday waiting for a meeting and uh, in came, well, I'll just say two staff members. <clears throat> And they were talking about an assessment that they had to give the kids. And one of them asked, so this is an assessment that's all in English. Do these students, all of these language learners, do they have enough English to be able to take this test? It just was, you know, it was interesting to just hear that. And I turned around, I'm like, what test is it that they're taking, right? Uh, But at least they were asking the question. I think that there's two that I think about from time to time from different different times in my life. One of the things that I didn't realize as much growing up was relative to Southwest Ohio, I had a, a pretty diverse group of teachers up through about fifth grade and then we moved. So for example, my second grade teacher was Filipino, my fourth grade teacher was a black woman. And I think that was one of my first experiences so it was this very weird dichotomy where, like, it was a very white existence. And so, like, the things that we read in the literature about, like, not being aware of race really, on some level you are, but, like, explicitly knowing your own race in terms of being white and what that means was very much a true experience for me. So much of the story is these unsaid things. Well, I got in trouble a lot in school. But <laughs> I, brought it, <laughs> I, I brought it to a whole new level in fourth grade. And I think it's one of those things where, like, as I've tried to always unpack those stories, things like, so for April Fool's Day, that was the year that I thought it would be funny to put glue on the teacher's chair. That was the year that I was sitting by myself and talking back. And so as I unpack it all, like this was also poor Miss Harris's first year of teaching. As I look back at this situation, part of me is always wondering how much of this was fourth grade processing of the racial smog of Cincinnati. For those of you who listen who know Cincinnati, we got a lot of it there. How much of it was a first grade teacher with a student who has these natural, as you all know, predispositions toward trouble and not having a full school skill set there. So I think that's one where in the moment I couldn't say this was a time that I understood my whiteness, but it was definitely one that as I continued to explore that as a concept, always kept coming back as this anchor around like trying to understand it through this situation. Growing up, I went to what I would consider by today's standards, very very diverse schools. Um, I remember my elementary school every grade from kindergarten through sixth grade it was pretty mixed racially but specifically across the white black spectrum there would be an occasional child from um, a latino background there would be an occasional child from um, an arab american background Um, but for the most part it was it was pretty straightforward white and black and that lasted all the way through high school and i remember in high school, there were some school closings in town, and those schools were predominantly black. And uh, the students then that were absorbed by my high school were black. So that actually took the the ratio up some, more on the black side, 60-40 uh, split, which, again, was uh, it was actually a phenomenal school to go to. I, I thought that's how the world should be. Yeah, I was conscious of race, of course, but within my schooling, Never once did I encounter any negative experiences with other students on the basis of race. However, that all changed when I went to college. So that's where I'm coming in on my student my student end 
um, my learner end of things. I was an early childhood major, and I remember taking a kindergarten practicum. It was the last course I had to take before my student teaching. I was the only male in the class, and I was, if I'm not mistaken, I was the only black person in the class as well. And that teacher, who I will not name publicly, she made me go through some things that the other students did not have to go through. Uh, and uh, specifically regarding my practicum, uh, she was, I, I was subject to more evaluations than every other student in the class. And the, I, might, you know, I might understand that had my evaluations been bad, but they were all good. But she wanted to continue to come and spend more time there. And I couldn't quite understand what that was all about. I was doing my practicum in uh, a, um, at the time, you would have called it an EBD classroom, a uh, kindergarten classroom at that. So we're talking about students that had to you know, be restrained mm-hmm. at times because of their uh, outbursts. I always wondered if there was a reason for me to be placed in that particular situation. All of the kids were black. I was a big black man in that particular, like of all of the placements I could have had. Why that one? I also remember uh, feeling like my uh, professor and cooperating teachers seemed to have this this issue with me. This all culminated with the final of the year. So I did what I would consider stellar work. Um, all And I had all of my documentation with me, of course. I had all of my papers I had written. I had, um, you know, all of my evaluations and everything was above board. And I get to the final, at, at this time I had to go into her office for a just a final conference. And she was going over my final grades and she said that my grade was a B. And I said, I don't understand how my grade is a B. You know, I have all of my stuff here. I guess I had an inkling that something like that might happen. I have all of my information here. And um, you said that I have a B. I don't, I don't have a B. Here's, here's what I have. But rather than look at the grades that she gave me on my papers, she told me, I'm going to give you two minutes to tell me why you think you deserve an A in my class. And mind you, I had all of my evidence right there. Yeah. Everything that she gave me. Everything that my collaborating teacher gave me. They spent time evaluating me together. Um, and she gave me two minutes to explain why I should have earned a name in her class. So guess what? I gave her two minutes, all right. I gave her, I, I remember, that was one time where I just talked and I was determined, I don't care if the timer goes off, I'm going to keep talking until I get my A. I have earned this A. I shouldn't have to explain to you why I think yeah. I deserve it. No, I've earned it. You have inklings and you, you kind of do with them what you will. Years later now, I, I know what it is. It's always been instilled in me as an African-American that I must work many times harder than the next person to receive the same recognition as the next person. Um, and that was just, I guess, confirmation in an education setting, me training to be an educator, um, that that is still true to this day. This question, I, as I think about it, I think about three distinct experiences and, and to sort of tie on to the ones that you guys have mentioned this idea of the first grade memory that stays with you. This one is really the only memory I I could say that I have of first grade. So there was this Christmas party in my first grade classroom, and the kids drew names for each other, and this boy that I had already liked, he drew my name, and he smiled at me, and I smiled at him, and we smiled at each other all the time, and I just thought, he's going to get me something so amazing. And so he brings me this present and puts it under the little class Christmas tree, and it's been wrapped in this gorgeous copper paper, and just obvious care that was taken to make this 
this gift and I'm like, oh, I know this is going to be awesome. When we got to unwrap it. Oh my gosh, yes. It was so awesome. It was a real makeup set. Like not a play makeup set. It was a real one. It was my heart's desire. And I thought only a true friend would have seen inside my heart to know I wanted a real makeup set. You know, I hugged him, thanked him for it, ran home, showed my parents, oh my gosh, look at what Clarence got me for my Christmas present. And they said, who, who got that for you? And I said, Clarence, and I said his last name, and it was a name that was known in our town as one of the few black families that lived in our town. And they said, mm, you can't have that. You're going to need to take that back. And I said, but why? And they said, you can't take presents from black boys. I think that was the first time that I had become aware that there was any difference as far as there was a white, black um, difference. And it was shocking to me on several levels. I mean, shocking that my parents had never talked to me this way. Shocking that it was set up to, you can't take presents from black boys. And then when I said, why? It was the rationale that I didn't understand for many years later. But the rationale was, they'll get ideas. And I didn't know what that meant at seven years old. I file that away. And I think, I'm not going to believe anything that they say because they don't know him. They don't, you know, he's my friend. And so I hid it under my bed and thought, um, I'm not going to trust them 100%. And in fact, I'm not sure that the adults in my life can be trusted 100%. Fast forward to middle school. When I had Mrs. Belton that I've talked at length about how she was really um, fundamental in my educational experience, she was the only African-American teacher I had. Fast forward again till now, till a doctoral program at Harvard. Deborah Jill Sherman is only the second African-American educator I've had in my schooling. That I look at that and it's no wonder that I had a lot of work to do and have had a lot of work to do to sort of sort all of these things. But I'm struck by the fact that in such a long career, in such a long span of time, because I am the oldest of our cohort, that those are the three experiences that I can touch as far as saying race. Race is something that became known to me. Feelings are a thread here. As we think about these stories, what differences, what, sh what shows up in terms of common feelings? I think the thing I'm taking from listening to all the stories, including my own, is the theme of seeing people for who they are and not what they look like. Judgments are made by people, by everyone, really, as soon as they see you walk through the door. We have to get beyond that because there's a lot of great things that are inside of a person that we'll never uncover if we don't sit down and have a conversation with those people. I'm struck by the need for leadership, for diversity and leadership. Not only in Adriana's story about really understanding the interplay between language learning and intelligence, but in your story, Jim, about how somebody can allow that to possibly push an educator out of the field. I mean, that could have happened to you. And you, Adam, what would have happened? That relationship could have gone many different ways. But I think 
when it is attached to an emotion and, and a sense of care, like in your part and my part, certainly that was Mrs. Belton to me, I think that goes a long way towards upending a narrative. But by the same token, the negative feelings go on the hard drive too, and they're just as critical. There's this through line of just feeling confused as a kid. There's this whole thing that's happening that like you don't have the subtext or the vocabulary for, but it's like, I think that's why it, when I think about like the stickiness factor, right? Like, isn't that part of the reason why it's sticky? You're like, there's something happening here that I can't fully name. It doesn't make sense to a six-year-old, and yet I know that it's happening, and I know that it's a thing. All of our stories were in different parts of the country, probably within the same type of generation, but that those our stories, if we sat down with other educators right now, they, they probably have similar stories as well. And it's, so it's not that it was something that was generational, right? It's still continuing to this day. Just the impact in terms of the, well, number one, the power that the adults have in the education system to really change trajectories uh, for their students. And I would even say, like in Jim's case, right, it's even at the university level or at the college mm-hmm. level, right, that, that even those administrators and those professors have the same type of power to change trajectories as well. Your story made me think about that saying that, you know, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. How important and critical it is for us to do, especially those of us who are white, to do this reflective work. That story that I told was lost to me until somebody asked the question, when did you first realize that you were white? I think that that is like a great question that white people need to sit with. This is one where when I think about like the way that it's portrayed in the research where I kind of deviate because like so often like they talk about like this unconsciousness around white people's relationship with their race where it's like they go back and like you talk to people like what's your first experience of race and people say I was 20 or this moment that you're talking to me right now is the first time I realized that I have white skin. I think it's disingenuous (laughs) to write it that way because I think my experience isn't so much that I didn't have racialized experiences. It's that I didn't, ha- I might not have had a language for them. These stories pop up, like the second you're asked it, you can start thinking about, oh yeah, I remember that thing with that babysitter. You know, I, I've started to build those stories. And I think every white person can build those stories and needs to build those stories right. for themselves. Not, not because it's, you know, penance, not because it's any of those things, but because it's part of your story that if you don't know yourself... You're not able to show up the way that you hope to show up in the world. I think for a person of color that it happens so often that you kind of become numb to it. Unless, I mean, it's very in your face, right? But there's so many microaggressions that happen on a daily basis that you just become numb. And unless you sit down and you start to reflect and you start going through the list of what happened every day. Yeah, like the other day I was uh, picking up my coat in a coat rack and... (laughs) There is a, a white male that was there who was obviously, we were both waiting for our coats. And he turned to me and he goes, well, what are you doing here? And I just said, well, um, I'm picking up my coat. What are you doing here? <laughs> but I think that the real question was, what was I doing in his space? Because mm-hmm. this was a very wealthy space. And so what was I doing there, right, in that space? Um, and then the, the follow-up question was, well, are you Okay. And I, it really, it, there was no context to, to be asking that question. Are you okay? Uh, and I said, I'm perfectly fine. Are you okay? And then there was no answer. 
I worry. I worry about my own kids. I worry about the kids in school. Like, are they prepared to deal with these kinds of interactions in a way that they can be reflective and they can um, turn around and, and, and help others as well? In the spirit of building allies or allyships or co-conspiratorships, as we like to, <laughs> to frame them within our work here, you know, it's, it's very important for not only, as you say, Adam, for, for white folks to do their work, but it's also important to to give um, a level of understanding to the experience of people of color, as we term all of us non-white folks, yeah. you know, and, and listen with empathy to the stories. I promise you we're not making these things up. But our lived experiences, they count for something. Um, and just an acknowledgement of that would go a long way in, in healing relationships across all types of identities. Yeah. You remind me of Mr. Rogers, like the famous <laughs> quote where he said, you know, once you know somebody's story, you can't help but love them. I always suspect, is that part of the fear? Like, if I listen to you, if I see you, if I care about your story, then that means I'm responsible to care. Like, you're going to make me care. And, right. if, and if I care, that means i got to do something. Right. And not just something, like change. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's important to know. What about when the person is well meaning? That would be me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, like, Adriana. Oh. Thanks thanks for giving me that third person. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Yeah. I just I, because I recently had that experience happen where very we very well meaning white person saying a comment that I think was made with, you know, like a very positive intention and the comment obviously landing in a horrible way right amongst a group of, of people of color that were there yeah. and then when think of one you know, two weeks ago yeah. <laughs> and so then when it was like kind of like you know repeated back and said actually you know this is this is the way that that it's landing with us there was no responsibility for it yeah. then what happened was that it, the tables turned and then the white person became the victim Mm -hmm. oh. Right, and so it, it's that white fragility, yeah. right, in terms of we have to um, deal with, and I think that is usually where the conversations go yeah. down. Mm -hmm. That it was really obvious because then all of the people of color in the room, and even some of the white people in the room, started turning around and started to just kind of wanting to not be part of that conversation, but no real resolution. So how do we deal with that? That story took a turn because yeah. I, I thought it was going to end one way, like the well-meaning part. So I was like, okay, well, they're well-meaning, yeah. so surely there's that's, space then that's yeah. created for that. But, but are they well-meaning? Like I think, as someone who can own this, yeah. like there might be a desire to be well-meaning, but there's also a competing desire to feel good and feel like you are, you know, good in quotes. Not like when I hear that story. And I don't think I was there. Maybe I was. There's this, like, ego piece that supersedes all. Stefan's comment during our first semester last year. Things aren't happening because everyone is so afraid of having to hold the R card. What does it mean to hold the R card? How do you hold that in a space of, you know, curiosity and recognizing that it's hard not to hold the R card? Everybody is. So, like, how can you own that? But not just an intellectual, but a curious space and disassociate it from the shame. And I think the people, like, people who are trying, like, in good intention means, like, trying. But that also means that their relationship with the shame of racism 
is harder to get over than the the bigot wearing the sheets. I can respect someone who's trying so long as they're open to yeah. us being able to surface where the trying is and how the trying has impacted. Yeah. Open to learning new behaviors as a result of that or new ways of being, new ways of saying certain things when you're not open to the feedback from those that are impacted by what you say, that's pretty telling. I wonder if at the heart of that inability to to be open to it and what you described, Adriana, is this idea, and you, you sort of, you and I have talked about this a little bit last year, Adam, this idea that there that everything is scarcity. You know, there are only so many spots. And so I'm going to, I can't admit a flaw. And you're calling me out on what now makes me look bad. So now I may, you may have damaged my chances for one of the very few spots that will be given to me. I think that's something that's really complex and subtle. And it, it feels true to me and some of the other white friends, female friends I've had, of why we pit, we're pitted against each other as women. And, but why specifically white women show up in these sort of um, spaces where they do things like call the cops on, on people for no reason. Because there is this sense of, I have no power and here's one place I can assert some power. And I also want to make sure that I get that like scarce position there. It's one thing to be thinking about equity or addressing these sorts of issues in terms of, oh, no, it's fine. Like, oh, yeah, I've got this open mindset, like mindsets or whatever, whatever those pieces are. But like when it really comes about, and I think that's where the scarcity piece comes in, when it comes about power that situation isn't so much about like there's these identity pieces but it's also like oh for me to actually be engaged in this space i'm actually giving up my power as the authority in the room i'm giving up my power to decide what comes in what comes out and that's what the real ask is and that's the bridge that most people won't cross but to change means that you have to lose something you have to give up something in schools, we get so used to this way of framing uh, low-performing schools as schools where the majority of students are children of color. And they pointed out to me that the, the, the framing that I had done in my story was I had you know, linked in the story the idea of all of this negative with children of color, and that I had at no time in the story shown the strengths of the community that I lived in and loved and served for 15 years. I hadn't mentioned any of the reasons why I wanted to stay there. I had just framed it as, here's this problem that everybody told me to, and people tried to give me these exits out of there so I could go to the quote-unquote better schools. That was so unconscious to me, but to get called out on that was like, it did not feel good at all, but it's very instructive because I cannot believe that this is the third time I've been called on that. Mm-hmm. May I just ask both of you a question mm-hmm. as my white peers and colleagues, loved ones? <laughs> what is it that you say was something that had to happen in terms of your own development so that you could be open to feedback from Adriana and from myself about things that we that landed a certain way with us and not go in a defensive mode there's part of that premise that 
I appreciate you for thinking that about me. And at the same time, oh, I'm, I know without a doubt that there's feedback that I can't hear mm-hmm. um, or don't hear. So I guess I would first off by saying is to the degree that I've been able to have some conversations and hear some things, I think that part, like it really comes down to you have to be able to find a home in whatever otherness you have. And I can speak to that as like, everyone has otherness because I'm coming at you as like, whenever we do those things in class, like all the sources of privilege and it's like, Oh, yep. Christian, white, male, come from means, <laughs> northerner, like all those, like when, when we got the nitty gritty ones, I'm like, yep, I'm on the, I couldn't get any of them on the side of not privilege. And yet I can tell you that I have experiences of other that are deep to my core and like traumatic to some degree. So things like moving from Ohio to California in fifth and sixth grade, where all of a sudden I knew no one in middle school, the worst time to not know anyone. Um, And that sense of like, what does it mean to be completely different than everyone here, to be culturally Midwestern in a place that did not respect that as a way of being. I think all of those sorts of things, like if you can tap into that, it's, it's the tiniest little mustard seed that it's nowhere near the same experience. It's nowhere near anything, but it's enough to have the empathy to start and to have at least enough of your your core to be able to say, let me be open to this little bit here. For me, in, in thinking about just really basic things, because I come from a place where people are violent, and I come from a place, a region with sundown towns, where there were literal signs on the edge of town telling um, black people that they had to be out of the city limits by the time the sun went down. When you have a a geography that's made up of that, it's much harder to have that conversation. So I think in some sense, you have to have a willingness to listen and listen with, with the openness um, that it's not about you. It's not about trying to make you feel bad or guilty or whatever. But it's just a willingness to listen to someone else's experience, just like you would anybody else's um, that would come to you. And the fact that race is involved in it, you have to really be willing to consciously tamp that defensiveness down to think, oh, you know, if I, if I listen to people of color, then they're just going to come at me about how everything I do is wrong and how my history was wrong and I was complicit in all of that. No, no one's asking you to do that. We're just asking you to just listen, just be open to the other person's experience. I think it comes back to this idea of, of storytelling as a political act. I mean, and that's what I, what I call it when I run my sections for the class that I'm TFing. This is what we did. We immediately got into these story circles and deliberately talked about identity because I really do believe it's much harder to sort of put those walls up if I'm willing to listen to you and listen to your story, then it does become political because that means I've got to be a little bit open to the fact that your experience was different than mine. What are the ways that we construct those spaces? Like how can we get people together where they can listen to each other's stories? That's what I really, that's what I'm curious for. But I really appreciate your question. Thank you. So today we told stories from the heart. What's the moral of the story today? When you care about people, then you'll care about changing. 
yeah, or something like that. Being open to listening, right? But then also being uh, able to own uh, the impact that you're having on people. So the work for everyone is different, but the commonality is everybody's got work to do. That doesn't make you a bad person, but it just makes you a person. So this has been Pedagogy of the Obsessed. P-O-T-O. P-O-T-O. We pose the problems of human beings in their relations with the world. Knowledge emerges only through invention and reinvention. Through the restless and patient continuing, hopeful inquiry human beings pursue in the world, with the world, and with each other. The solution is not to integrate them into the structure of oppression, but to transform that structure so that they become beings for themselves. Liberation is a practice of action and reflection on the world.